Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Before I forget, I want to make sure I make a couple announcements, and that is right after this meeting, I would like to meet with all the parents and teenagers uh, in here in the church. And so if you're a parent and you have a teenager, uh, both the teens and the parents, I'd like to meet in the teen room over here. So if we could do that, um, no matter if your teens come to the uh, Bible studies or not, uh, that would be great. And then also, uh, if you're a master's student, I've already said this to some of you, but I want to make sure all you know you're invited to come to our house for lunch. So, yeah, that's great. And uh, everyone else, let's fellowship in Christ, right? And eat your own lunch. <laughs> no, just kidding. Go out with someone. How about that? I was reading about a professor. Can you hear me okay? Okay. I was reading about a professor who was on a trip to Peru. And again, if you need to move, some of you I know get in the sun, feel free to move, okay? Um, a Christian professor was on a trip to Peru with a colleague of his, and they were teaching in a university there, and they were speaking about Christianity and uh, just the, the world from a Christian perspective. They were speaking about different issues and doing some lectures, and they were on a plane on the way back from Peru to the United States, and one of the professors was standing there, and in front of him were two college students, you know, United States college students, and one of the college students turned to his friend and said, that guy up there, and he pointed to his colleague with gray hair, he says, that guy up there with gray hair, he goes, that's a professor, he's in, our, he's in Peru here, and he's speaking about the benefit to Christianity. And so he started complaining about like, how Christianity has been so detrimental to so many different countries and, and, you know, around the world or whatever, and so this guy tapped this young man on the shoulder, this professor, and he said, hey, actually, that's my colleague right there. And I want you to know something. And they were in this terminal. There's, you know, just dozens and dozens of a crowd of people there. And he says, between us and that professor, do you know all those people are Christians who have gone into the villages in Peru and they're doctors and dentists and they're actually doing humanitarian work with the tribes. They're actually doing something really good right now, this past week. And, of course, it left those young men in a little bit of, you know, speechless that not really know what to say. And unfortunately, that kind of idea that those college students believed was, is taught in many universities. Many people believe that. But actually, actually, as you study history and you study culture, you actually find that a culture without Christ is actually cruel, generally cruel and unjust, and lacks a moral compass. And what's interesting to see is actually in our day, you see a lot of these atheist historians, as they start studying history, they recognize the benefit to Christianity. In fact, one of, those, his, one of those historians, his name is Tom Holland. He's written books on Islam. He actually went over to um, Iraq and lived over there and then wrote a, um, a book on ISIS. He studied Greek and Roman, Roman society. And then also, also he started studying Christianity. He studied the Roman society versus the Christian movement that happened. And he wrote an article after that, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. See, what he, what he studied about the Roman and Greek cultures, he, he realized how dark and sinister that culture was. They, they murdered children or, and people, really, who were imperfect. They cast away unwanted children to die. The slaves were just property. Women had little to no rights. The weak and the sick were treated like animals. And he recognized how terrible people, and there was, they, didn't, they actually condoned genocide, but then Christ came on the scene and Christians began to influence the culture with transformed lives. And Christians began taking care of those who were sick and those who were cast off. 
the church rejected polygamy and prostitution and homosexuality and bestiality. And actually, Christians began to cherish families and, and children and, and wives and slaves and other people who were pushed down were elevated in their worth. And Christians became the hard-working, compassionate class of people in that society. And what actually, what he saw was Christianity had this amazing impact upon culture and changed the world and still affects it today. When Christians enter into a society, they shine as lights in the darkness for the glory of God. 1 Peter 2 teaches us that we are to glorify God, or really how we can glorify God, by doing good. You should have a handout that came Back in the back there, if you want to go get one, you can. But in our handout today, we're going to go to our second part of our series here, which speaks about how do we glorify God while we live under a human government. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. This is our second part of this text. We only really got through verse 14 last time. We're going to try to finish through verse 17 this morning. 1 Peter 2, 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to be upon the preaching of your word this morning. We always come to a time like this and want to remember that this is not the words of Ben Ice, that I, by your grace, will speak the words of God. So may we listen to those words. And again, I pray this, God, anything I say here that is my own opinion, I pray that will be not spoken first and second won't be something that we will listen to. May we submit ourselves to you in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began this study, and now we're going to pick it up here in verses 15 and 16. Peter taught us as a church how do we glorify God under human authorities. One of the necessary parts of life is that every person lives under some type of government. I mean, either, even if you go to a deserted island and you live with a few people like Gilgan's Island, you still have some kind of social construct, right? Government really is just a simply a, a collective ordering of society. And everyone lives under some form of government, whether you're in a tribe in Africa or a kingdom in Europe or a dictator in Central America or a communist in China or whether you are under a constitutional monarchy in England or a constitutional republic like in America. The point is, everyone lives under some type of government. And there are many forms, but like we spoke last week, we said God actually was the one that came up with the idea of government. We see that in Genesis chapter 9. He formed an idea of government and capital punishment. And last week, I just want to cover this and make sure we remember that God speaks to the purpose of government. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 14, God's purpose in government is to, one, maintain peace, that's done through justice and judgment, and number two, to encourage personal responsibility through freedom and praise, them praising 
those who do good. So to maintain peace and to encourage personal responsibility. And as Christians, we should influence our society. We should influence really our government to follow this purpose right here. And so I, in our society, we have a benefit of actually having a say in what Caesar, if you want to say it that way, dictates, right? We have a vote. So you can vote, and I think we should vote in line with these principles right here and those that fall under that. And also, we can actually be, some people, I don't know of anyone in here, but we can actually as Christians go into office and be able to hold up these ideas. But no matter what sort of government we find ourselves in, God calls us to shine as lights for his glory. And so how do we do that? Well, first point you can see in our sheet there, how do we glorify God as we live under our government? First, we recognize our responsibility, which is what? We are to submit to God's ordained authorities. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, verse 13 says. And so the scripture is clear. God is the highest authority. He delegates his authority to human authorities to carry out his purposes and his plans. Now, of course, governments in general don't submit to God knowledgeably. They don't, by, in their own knowledge, or I shouldn't say, I should say they, they don't um, intentionally submit to God. Many don't. But whether they submit to God intentionally or not, they still serve the purposes of God. What's amazing about God's sovereignty is that even though government officials and their laws might defy God, God actually uses their actions for his divine plan. Remember, Jesus was standing in front of Pilate, and Pilate boasted to him, and he says, Will you not speak to me? Speaking to Jesus. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say back to him? You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above, from his father. In other words, the only reason Pilate had any authority was because God gave it to him. And even more than that, Pilate, the Roman authority, the Jewish authority there, those authorities they were unaware that they were actually fulfilling God's eternal plan. Remember Acts chapter 4, when the church gathers to pray, they, they remember that, what happened, and this is what they pray. For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles, that's the Gentile rulers, the people of Israel, the Jewish rulers, and listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, God used the Roman and Jewish authorities to fulfill his predestined plan to send Jesus to this world to be the savior of the world. And, and we, I always like to reflect on this when I think about the politics in America. Because for Christians, this brings us great hope and comfort. Nothing that happens in our government. A Supreme Court position opened up this week. I don't know what your opinion is on that. I don't really care. But the point is, that's something that God oversees. Whatever happens in November, God is the one who is moving history to his, his end. And yes, we should participate in the things that we can participate and influence how we can influence. But remember, no matter what happens, our city and county and state and federal leaders will serve the purpose of God. 
they will serve the purpose of God because God is the supreme authority and he actually is the one who moves the heart of kings and of governments to do what he wills. The king's heart, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And so for us as Christians, our number one priority is this. We want to submit to God to the king of kings. And as long as that government doesn't restrict us from obeying God, then we should obey our government. And if our government restricts us from obeying God, we obey the king of kings, the higher authority that is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the reason to submit? And how does God use his, his divine purpose his divine providence, I should say, his divine providence for his glory. What's the reason he gives here? Well, the reasons are given here in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here's the reason we should submit to the government that God has put over us, or really any authority God has put over us, that he has ordained to be over us. And it's found here in verse 15. What is it? For this is the will of God. That word for there is a very powerful word used to introduce the reason why God wants us to do what he wants us to do. And what is the reason? For it's God's will. It's God's will. God elected us. He redeemed us. He saved us. Why? To do his will. And according to this verse, what is his will? What does it say in verse 15? For this is the will of God. What does it say? That by doing good. In fact, look back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Very beginning of this verse. He says... Well, if you look at verse 1, he says, we're elect. At the very end of verse 2, he says, why? For the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. Look down in chapter 1, verse 14. He talks about how we live out our salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then flip. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, he says, We are to live out the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in, in 1 Peter, you see this contrast between our human passions and then God saving us to do his will which, like I said, in our context here, means that we do good to those who are in our society, those around us. And so Peter declares that we're saved for this reason, to do, to obey the will of Jesus Christ. We are having some students over today. We love having people to our house. One of our favorite places in our house is our table. And we sit there and eat our supper as much as possible every night. And we'll sit around sometimes, honestly, for a while and just sit there, tell stories and laugh and have a really good time. There's a certain type of etiquette that you're supposed to have around the table, right? 
I mean, as parents, we try to teach our kids to have this certain type of etiquette. And when I was growing up, that's what my parents did. They, we sat around the table and talked and, and joked and had a lot of fun. There were times, though, I don't know if I lived up to the, the will of my parents. I can remember one time that we were all telling jokes, and I laughed, and uh, all this juice came out of my nose. You ever had that happen to you? If it's soda pop, it really burns, but... I can remember being somewhere else, not at my parents' house. I remember I was sitting at a table with a group of people. It was more of a formal thing. People were dressed up, and, and I got one of those little uh, baby tomatoes, you know what I'm talking about? And I put a, got a knife and slit the little mouth in it, and so I was able to talk with it, and you know, I was pretending like it was talking and not probably the best etiquette. And then I thought it'd be really funny if I squeezed it a little bit and had the stuff come out like it was, you know, I don't have to say it, do I? And so I was, and I was talking to this girl across the table from me, and I went like this, and I squeezed it like this. So I said, I don't feel so good. And it squirted across the table onto her dress. She had a white dress on. That was not proper etiquette, that's for certain. And as parents and grandparents, we, we have a will, we have a desire for how our children are to behave at a table like that. There's a sense when your children behave, you kind of feel a little bit of glory for the family, right? You're like, oh, that's... And when they don't, you feel shame. (laughs) You feel shame for how they maybe, you know, a kid pulled a a spaghetti needle through his nose or something like that. You ever had one of your kids do that? Don't try this, kid. These are like bad examples, so I'm just telling you what not to do. That is not the will of your parents, especially the five children sitting in the front row up here. But if a, chi- if, a, if a person, a child in particular, eats at a table unrestrained, like if, if children or even anyone is unrestrained at, at a table, they live really in disobedience of their children to their parents' will, right? But what, what a parent wants is they want their children to follow and be guided by their, the parents' will, what the parents' desires are. And that's the same thing really you see here in First Peter. As children of God, we're called to follow the will of our Father. But the rest of the world, they live according to their passions, however they feel. They're, they're driven by the, the sinful passions of their heart. They're unrestrained. And, and so we saw that in those, pa- those, those passages, this really contrast between the world who follows their passage, passage sorry, pas- passions, there you go, passions and whatever their heart wants to do, and children of God who follow the will, the desires of God. And, and either your heart is guided by sinful passion, or your heart is guided by the Holy Spirit according to God's word, which is God's will. And so look at verse 15. He says, this is God's will. This is what should, should guide your, your actions, your behavior within that society. For this is God's will, that by doing good. What does that mean? What does it mean to do good? Well, I think in the context, it's related to submission to your authorities. That definitely is included in there. But I think it has to mean more than that. Otherwise, I think you probably would have used that word. I think it has to go beyond just, just submission. I think it actually goes to proactively doing something that benefits other people. In fact, you can see this in other different uh, texts uh, throughout First Peter. And I'm not going to go through all those, but you see over and over, he talks about doing good, doing good, doing good. And then notice in verse 15, the, the potential effect of our doing good to others. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I think verse 15 represents really the suffering a believer faces in the world, particularly even regarding government. There's a sense where where, 
the government and other people speak negatively about Christians. And, and so you have this, this, these verbal attacks upon Christians. That's why he says they put to silence the ignorance of foolish, of foolish people. Remember, the main body of Peter's letter is helping, helping the church navigate our world by admonishing us to bring glory to God by living like Jesus, Jesus Christ while we suffer. So how might we suffer in the world? Well, there's so many different ways, but particularly right here, he's speaking about people speaking against you and really speaking against the church. And notice the spoken insults. Notice the insults are spoken insults against Christians. And sometimes when we hear maybe lies about Christians or, or when we hear someone attack Christianity or Christ, we can be surprised. Like, what? why are they doing that? They don't know the truth. Or what well, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And that, and that phrase, all kinds of evil, means that we as followers of Christ, we will have insults and lies and ridicule and false accusations laid at our feet. And it's not that those insults don't hurt. It's not that we, in some sense, shouldn't be offended by that. But actually, the response that Jesus wants us to have is to recognize that they are persecuting us because, really, they don't love our Savior. So we should see ourselves as blessed we get to suffer in the same way Christ did. And how do we respond to hurtful words like that? What does he say? How should we respond? Keep doing good by doing good. And that seems strange to us, doesn't it? When someone hurts us, someone comes against us, our automatic response is, how can I get back at them? Even the idea of, how can I defend myself? But actually, the call here from Peter, and then also previously from Christ, is to fight this war Christ's way. What are the weapons of warfare for Christ? Well, Paul says they're powerful to pull down strongholds. How does God want us to fight this war? We're to fight evil with good. Jesus, again, said, Mark, I'm sorry, Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when people hate you, now think about that. Do you feel very blessed when people hate you? Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. Does anybody, anybody like to be excluded? I don't. And revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Wow. That's definitely not the response we typically have, is it? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. That's why we rejoice. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But I say to you, love your enemies and what? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. What's the call for the Christian when evil is perpetrated upon him? When people speak evil of you? Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, with good. So how can you overcome that person who's out to destroy you? Overcome evil with good. And that might mean directly doing good to them. It might mean writing a letter 
of kindness, or maybe it's doing something kind for them, or, or it could be, I mean, sometimes it's not possible actually to do good for some of those people, to some of those people, maybe because they're preventing it, maybe because of distance, maybe because of death or different things. And so if that's not possible, just keep living a life of goodness before the Lord. And your battle of goodness in the face of, in this case, malicious words, it has an effect. Look back up in verse 12. Remember the effect that Peter said that our good lives can have. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. Your good deeds before the Lord bring glory to God, whether they recognize it or not. And I believe that even on the last day of judgment before the Lord, if they never recognize that as something that God did through you, that they will on that day bring glory to God by recognizing that they were wrong. Verse 15 gives the hope that even in this life it can have some kind of effect. In fact, look at verse 15. He says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I don't think this is a promise. This is not a promise here. I think it's more of a truism that when you do good, it shows those who are accusing you of evil that they are wrong. And so it's not, it's not a promise that if you do good, that will change that person. It's the promise, it's a truism here that, that we are to do good and that can have an effect even if it's to silence those who accuse us of evil. It is God's will for us to do good. And this is how Jesus lived his life, isn't it? In fact, we'll see this in a couple weeks. Look in 1 Peter 2.23. We're going to look at the life of Jesus from Peter's perspective. And the Bible says in 2.23, when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. But what? He continued to trust. He continued entrusting himself to him. That's his father who judges justly. In other words, he kept doing good even in the face of evil. And what was the good that Jesus did at this time? He was dying for the sins of the world. He was dying for the sins of those who were abusing him. Jesus kept doing good, which means he didn't revile back. He didn't seek to retaliate. In fact, we even know that he prayed for those on the cro- when he was on the cross. He prayed for those that they would find forgiveness. And so he kept doing good. There's a tremendous book I recommend you to read. It's called How Christianity Changed the World by Alan J. Schmidt. And it details how the church, by doing good, has put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's called How Christianity Changed the World. It's really a fascinating study of how, from the first century till today, how Christianity has impacted this world for good. He tells a couple stories in there. One story he tells of a pagan soldier who was in the Roman army, an emperor's army. And this guy, you know, because he was a soldier, traveled around everywhere, but he was a typical Roman soldier. He was abusive. He was vile. He, since he was a Roman soldier, he viewed himself as a male to be superior to all the other females, and actually females were to be used and abused for his own pleasure. So he had, he had this very high view of himself, very low view of everyone else. And, but as he went around the Roman society, he started seeing these people who would, who would 
take care of people who are poor. And of course, he was Roman, so he considered poor people to be just trash. Like, what's, what's the point of them living? And then there's these people that actually cared for them and loved them. He saw children who were abandoned, brought into homes of, of people who were called Christian. And he began to go around and see these groups of people who were actually doing something that was good. And it, it amazed him, in fact, to the point where he didn't know anything about Christianity, but decided he was going to study the Christian writings and the Christian teachings. And of course, he then went to the scriptures and studied the scriptures. And he tells a story how this Roman soldier was transformed to believe into Jesus Christ. He was transformed by the power of Christ and he turned and submitted his heart and life to Jesus Christ. So there's a positive story, how someone saw the positive effects of people doing good and it turned his heart to the Lord. So, our reason for submission is it's God's will for us to do good. So it's, if you look at your notes there, it is God's will for our good deeds to counter evil. That's verse 15. It's God's will for, to use our good deeds to counter evil. And then verse 16, I believe it's teaching that it's not God's will to use your freedom to do evil. Look at verse 16 and, and notice, I, I believe this, this tension between verse 15 and 16. Verse 16 presents the, the tension between I think verse 15, I should say, talks about God's will, what we should do. And verse 16 speaks about really what, what we, how we want to counter God's will, really following our own desires, our own passions. In fact, if you look at verse 16, you can see there's only one verb. Now, if you're reading the English translation, you say, well, no, there's, there's three verbs, Pastor Ben. There's live and using and living. Aren't there three verbs in verse 16? Well, actually, the verbs living and live, or live and living, are not present in the original language. The translators put them in there so it will be more readable for us as English readers. But actually, the only verb in verse 16 is the verb there, using. So you actually could translate verse 16 this way. So you can look at verse 16 in your translation. I'll tell you how you could translate it. Literally, more literally, would say like this, As free people, not using your freedom as a cover for evil but as God's servant. So, so the main thrust of this verse is found in that verse right there. Don't worry about the papers. We're not singing anymore. It's okay. The main thrust of that verse right there, verse 16, is to not use your freedom. So that's the, that's the main verb right there. In fact, in verse 15, the main verb, look at verse 15, is doing good. That's a, a present active participle. And in verse 16, using is a present active participle. So you see this parallel, then positive, we are to do good according to the will of God. And negative, we are not to use uh, our freedom for evil. So I think that the point of verse 16 is to warn us not to do evil and excuse it because we're Christians. So verse 15 teaches it's God's will for you to do good. And then verse 16 teaches that it's God's will for us not to do evil and excuse it as our freedom to do that because we're Christians. What is the freedom he speaks of in verse 16? Is it the American right for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? No, I think we all know that. It's not the case. He's talking about our freedom in Christ. Our freedom refers to the liberty God has given to us to do what is right before him. In fact, would you turn over with me to John chapter 8? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is a very important point that Peter is bringing up here. Do you realize the Bible, and Jesus Christ particularly, taught that every person is born into this world as a slave? Not a slave of a person, but a slave to sin. Each person 
enters into this world as a sinner, and each person therefore serves sin and ultimately serves the father of sin, and that is Satan. Look at John chapter 8, verse 31. The Bible says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, Jesus' disciples are set free. They're no longer enslaved. Well, they were confused. Verse 33, they were confused by this. And they answered him, probably more of the unbelieving religious leaders there, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus said to them, he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Let me say that again. He said, everyone who practices sin. How many, of, how many does that include in this room right here? Oh, we're not in a room. Outside here. Everyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus taught we're all sinners, we're all slaves to sin. Whether you realize it or not, you are enslaved to sin. You can most clearly see it in, maybe in the contrast of people who have some kind of powerful sin that over, overwhelms them. Think about the al- alcoholic. And the alcoholic says, I can quit anytime I want to, right? If you've ever met an alcoholic, you talk to that person and you say, you should stop drinking. They say, well, I can stop anytime I want. That's why the first thing you say in AA is what? My name is Ben and I am, you admit it. You say, no, I am someone who has this problem. Gamblers say, just one last bet. This is the last one, I promise. One last bet. The lazy man says, just a little bit more sleep. The sex addict says, never again. I'm never going to do that again, only to then do it again. The angry person regrets his destructive behavior and says, I want to change, but he never changes. Do you realize, my point is this, is that every person, all of us are, as unbelievers, they have this power over them. It's an enslavement to sin. And every person is deceived to think, I can overcome it myself. And he's wrong. And why is he wrong? Because the Bible, Jesus teaches here that we are slaves under Satan and the power of sin. In fact, look down just real quick at verse 44. You can see Jesus highlights this for them. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will, your desires, is to do your father's desires. So every sinner follows really the the sinner, which is Satan. And that's why every person needs a savior. And who is that savior? It's Jesus Christ. Look back in verse 35. Jesus says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. If you're a slave in a house, eventually you're kicked out of the house, right? But the son remains forever. In other words, he's there, kind of referring to eternal life. The son remains in the house forever because he's a son. Verse 36, so if the son, Jesus is referring to himself, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus' point was, a slave can't set himself free. It takes a member of the household. And so if you're enslaved to sin, you must have a member of God's household, that's Jesus Christ, come down and free you from your sin. And that's what he did. Jesus came down, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again to free you from your sins. And if you turn in faith to him, he forgives you, he cleanses you, and he invites you to be his son and daughter, the son and daughter of God the Father. And what's amazing is the New Testament teaches this, that as sons and daughters, we are no longer slaves to sin, we're actually slaves to God. Now, you might go, what? Wait, I thought we're free. 
Well, the New Testament picture is that someone will control your life. Someone will be the master of your life. Whether it be Satan and he uses your own sinful desires, or whether it be Jesus and the Holy Spirit's power over your will. In other words, it's either God or it's going to be your sinful desires that control you. In fact, Jesus' invitation to people is what? Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, if you're, if you're under the power enslavement of sin, you've got a burden upon you. It's tiring. It's painful. It's, ha- it's hard. And so Jesus says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. That's, that's enslavement right there. He's saying, no longer be a slave to sin. Come and take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my, the slavery to God is easy and is burden and light. In other words, when you turn to Jesus Christ, you become a child of God and you then therefore can serve him as your master. So we have this freedom as servants, and you could say it this way, slaves to God to do what God wants us to do. And what is it God wants us to do? His will. And what is his will? For us to do good. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. So Peter is teaching here that God has given you freedom to serve Jesus Christ, to follow his will, which is to do good. You have that ability. If you are enslaved to sin, you just live that life, that cycle of sin. But if you are a slave of God, then you can live for him and follow his will. So if he says in verse 16 that we are to live as free people. We are as free people not to use our freedom to cover up evil, but to live how God wants us to live as servants of God. I think as Christians, we can many times use our Christianity to cover our sinful desires. I read an article yesterday in the Detroit Free Press about a pastor that wrote an email to a reporter. This reporter's name is Sarah Jeong. And she was accused, I guess, online of saying something very vile about Christians. Later it was found out that actually that was not true. What was accused, she was accused of actually became uh, not to be true. It was false, fake news, if you want to say it that way. And uh, this pastor, though, was very, didn't know that. He didn't know that it was fake. And so he wrote an email to her from his email address he had at the church. And he wrote really a very hateful and vile email to this lady. In fact, so much, I can't even read it aloud. And he called her a racist name. He called her a bitter Asian woman. He theorized about mutilating Muslims. And he called her a brain-dead liberal. This pastor was seeking to defend Christianity and fight evil. And how did he fight evil? With evil. What he said and what he did was wicked. And he probably should lose his job. His church should hold him accountable. But he used Christianity, and really you could say his freedom in Christ, to cover up his evil deeds. And I think what, I just want to say this because a lot of times people look at that and they point to that and they say, ha ha, see Christianity is bad. Look at those. So you got pastors even saying mean things like that. Well, the Bible said it's going to happen. The Bible says we're going to be tempted to, to use our Christianity as a cover to do things that are bad. So 
God doesn't think that's actually something that's foreign. It's actually something we're commanded to be aware of and, and don't follow that way of thinking. I think we can sometimes fall into this without even really considering that we're sinning against God. We can see the perversion of our world. We can see really how it disgusts God, how it disgusts us. And then we can, we can slip into this, this evil way of speaking about people for the sake of righteousness, which seems backwards, doesn't it? But that, that's what he's talking about in verse 16 here. We can think because of our freedom in Christ that we can, we're the exception to calling someone a name. We can maybe post uh, something that's vile about someone else, or we can say words about other people that are mean and derogatory. I've seen online people calling people Karen. You seen that one? You know what? Every time I see that, righteously it makes me angry to call someone a name, especially since I know a lot of good Karens. You know, you see a, a public officials, I think we all know who this one is, that calls people Crazy Nancy, Sleepy Joe, Lying Ted. That is not righteous. It's wrong that that happens. And as Christians, we should never participate in that. May that wickedness never cross, come across our mouth or our fingers as they type them out. Sometimes we can use Christianity as a cover for the sanctified sins of complaining, right? Come on, we see all the craziness in this world, the hypocrisy of governor, governing officials. And hey, let's go ahead and point it out. They're, hypocr they're, uh, they're hypocrites, right? They make one law for us and they buy by another one. It happens all the time. But what we can do is we can turn, and therefore, everything is a complaint. We gripe and complain. Oh, can you believe the government is doing this again? <laughs> right? I'm, I'm saying that as that, that's me. <laughs> like, I'm like, I got to wear a mask in here. What's going on, you know? But the, well, the problem with that is, is that we then take what we, we know as, okay, this is the truth. This is what's righteous. And then we actually turn and complain about that. We actually turn and grumble. And we actually, we do evil in the, for the sake of promoting good. And I think that's what he's saying here. He's like, don't use your freedom in Christ to actually as a cover for what is wrong, what is evil. We're to live as servants of God, which means what? We're to be thankful. We're to follow the will of God. We're to do good. And out of our mouth, that means we say, God, thank you for what you've given to me. Thank you for what you're doing in my life and in our world. And how are we to respond? We are to do good. And, and notice verse 17. What does that look like in our world today, and particularly in our society that we're living in, which is, he's speaking of the government we're under. Verse 17, he presents four ways we should respond to four different groups in society. So what are the four groups? You have all people, you have the brotherhood, which is the church, you have God, and you have the emperor, or really the government, and those underneath him. So how should we respond? We're, not, we're just going to close with this. We're to honor every person. Honor means we value everyone. Which means every person that we see, whether they're Democrat or Republican or the occasional libertarians we meet or anyone else that says they're in the middle or rich or poor or those who are fat or skinny or ugly or pretty or tall or small or intellectual or mentally retarded or upper class or lower class or middle class or dark skin, light skin, tan skin, blotchy skin, every person should be treated as a person that has value created in the image of God. That's how Christians respond in our society. 
We honor everyone. We value people as those who are created in God's image. So that should affect, therefore, how we speak about people. So how do we bring glory to God in our society? We value each person. We speak of them. We treat them in a way that shows that they have value. And then secondly, how do we respond is we are to love the brotherhood. This is speaking of the church. This speaks of a special love that we should have for one another. There's a special sacrificial love that we should have for those around us right here. And an interesting distinction, we honor everyone, but there's this special sacrificial love, this commitment, this covenant that we have with those of the church. And then third, we're to fear God. God really is the only one to be feared because he's the only one who has authority over our souls. So let's fear him. And then last, honor the king. Again, this was written to a society who had Nero as the dictator. He was, of all people, someone who should not be lifted up as a great person at all. But yet he says here, honor the king, honor the emperor, honor the governing officials you have over you. So how do we glorify God as we live under our government? Let's submit to our our government in obedience to the Lord. And let's, let's submit to him. Let's do it for the reason that we want to follow God's will and we want to do good. And let's respond by honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, fear God, and honoring our government. As we end here, I want to give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord. It, it could be maybe there's something said here that God pricked your heart. As I was going through this, I realized, even for myself, I thought, man, you are a really um, complaining person, Ben. Like you, When you see things you don't like about the government, you just automatically compre- complain about it. Maybe something God pricked your heart about that, and I think it'd be good for you to go to the Lord and confess that to him. Maybe you're in here today and you're without Christ, and I would invite you to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And also, I'd like us to pray as we conclude here. Pray for ourselves. How can you, how can you do good this week? Like, this is God's will for you. No matter what happens in our government, this is God's will for you to do good. How can you, think about it, how can you do good to those around you, to those in your society? How can you honor those? How can you love your bro- the brotherhood, the church? How can you honor the king? And then let's pray for those four groups of different people. Pray for our country, pray for our church, pray to our God, and pray for our officials. Let's end in prayer. I'm going to just give you a couple minutes to talk to the Lord on your own, and then I'll conclude in prayer. Father, it's our prayer that as a church, as born-again believers, that you would give us humble hearts before you. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of all. And one day every person will kneel before you and declare 
you as Lord, even if they don't do it in this life, to the glory of God the Father. But our prayer right now, Lord, is for those who are in our society. We want to honor those around us. We want to treat those around us with dignity, respect. Even beyond that, we want those around us to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We want them now to have the hope of eternity. We want them to confess that Jesus, you're Lord now, so that it's not too late for them when they are before you at judgment. So I pray for our city. I pray for our church as we go out into our world, wherever that is, in our workplace. I pray that we'll shine as lights to everyone as we honor those around us and give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we desire to love our church. I pray for us to be united around Christ for each other. May we sacrificially give to meet the needs of other people spiritually and physically and socially. And I pray, God, that you will give us a heart as a church of love. God, I pray that we'll fear you. You are the Lord. You're the one who calls the shots. And so I pray we'll submit to the word of God in the fear of you. And then I pray, Lord, for our governing officials. We feel and we sense our world is spiraling out of control, but it's not out of your control. We feel like it's uncertain what's going to happen in the next few months, but God, we know that it's certain in your hands. And so we confess this to you, but we also ask, Lord, give us that faith to trust you more. We do ask, God, though, that by your sovereign power, that you will allow our country to turn back to you. I pray, God, you will turn our country to, to a place of more peace and security. I pray justice and judgment will be, um, will be what you call justice and judgment. I pray our country will respect the governing officials and the police and those who enforce the laws. And I pray that, God, you'll give us freedom to be able to follow you to worship you, and to do what is good in our society. We pray, Lord, please intervene in our society, in our time of history, and God, please give us rulers who will rule righteously for the glory of God. No matter what happens, Lord, we ask for the grace to be the church, the light in our society, in our government. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.